0: Uh, If you have a Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 3, otherwise I'll read it out in a moment. Um, A little while ago, I looked at some of these other, these are uh, letters or words that Jesus has for various churches after he's ascended into heaven. He speaks through a man called John, one of his disciples, Um, and we're going to look at the letter to the church in Philadelphia, Jesus' words to to the church in Philadelphia. We're hearing the risen Christ from heaven speaking to his church, and each one of these Churches has a specific context, but each one of them forms part of Christ's word to the church. There's something really unique about this part of Scripture for that reason. So, turn to Revelation chapter three. I want to read it to you in a moment, but I want to start with a question. I want you to imagine for, your, for the, uh, yourself, yourself. Um, if you want to put that black for a moment, if you want, imagine yourself in a football team, and you're three-one down, and it's half time. And at this point, you're expecting the manager to come in to the, to the team room and he comes in and you're expecting a kind of rousing speech that will give you great encouragement, that will remind you of what you've got, you've got in you to be, able to, uh, to be able to overcome and to turn the tide and to win this match. And the manager comes in and what does he say? He says, you are weak. You are weak and you are insufficient for the task. And he's not doing it in a way that he's trying to like remind you, to like, rile you up, so you go, oh, we're going to prove him wrong. He really means it. <laughs> and you think, what kind of management strategy is this? Or um, you're, you're running a, a, a long race for you. So for me, that would be anything, 2K, that would be a long race. Um, but let's say you're doing a 10K run or a, you know, whatever, whatever's appropriate for you. And, um, and you brought a friend along. It's one of those races, lots of other people are there. And, uh, and they're about a kilometer away from the end. And you're running and you're thinking, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to make it to the end. I'm absolutely at the end of myself. And as you're running, you see your friend on the right hand side. You think, yes, great, nice encouragement coming. And as you're running past them, they shout, you are weak! (laughs) You can't do this! And you think, what kind of friend are you? (laughs) Why did I ask you to come? What kind of encouragement is this? The reason I share this is because actually, these are Jesus' words to the church in Philadelphia. He starts... Right in the middle of his, his, his message to them, he says, I know you are of little power. You are not strong. You are weak. Why does he do that? How do we make sense of Jesus' quite remarkable words to them? It's because Jesus doesn't need, or perhaps even want, disciples who are strong in and of themselves. He doesn't need your strength. What he needs, what he wants, is ordinary people who recognize their weakness and are able to admit to that weakness because they have found their strength in him. And I want to show you what does it mean to admit, to recognize your own weakness and to find your strength in Christ, to depend on a strong saviour. Let me read to you from Philippians chapter 3. Uh, from Revelation chapter 3 And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the holy one the true one who has the key of David who opens and no one will shut who shuts and no one will opens I know your works behold I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I shall write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from, he- from God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There's a lot there, and we'll unpack it. What you need to understand, first of all, is we're talking to a suffering community here. They are based in a, a precarious town, a town which has experienced earthquakes in the last century and aftershocks, and it's a vulnerable place to live. They're experiencing poverty. Uh, they were a, a community that uh, earned its money, so to speak, through winemaking, but the emperor, just in just around the time of this letter, has, has uh, slashed the wine production across the Roman Empire. So essentially, many of them would have been, been experiencing poverty. And the church community itself is a a minority group in a a culture that, by and large, completely disagrees with it. They've experienced oppression and rejection from their own people. You saw in verse 9, he speaks about a synagogue of Satan. Likely that these guys are ethnically Jewish. They were part of the synagogue. And about this time, they were thrown out of the synagogue, rejected by their own people. Think about what it would be like to be rejected by your family and your friends. This might have had economic implications, as the the jobs they did may well have been tied up in that community, so they might have lost their livelihoods at the same time. They are no doubt feeling at the end of themselves, feeling weak, like we can't go on in all sorts of ways, we're experiencing great pressure. And this is Jesus' kind of half-time team talk to them, so to speak. This is his great encouragement to them. By the way, note, he has nothing negative to say, if you were here for the other Sermons in this series back in a few weeks, months ago, never it was, um, had lots of challenging things to say. To these guys, he has nothing challenging to say, only encouragement. It's a reminder, actually, that, that Christ sees your hidden faithfulness, that your prayer life, the things that you do in secret, that perhaps no one else sees, Christ sees it. At times you might say, what? what am I doing this for? Well, actually, you have a saviour who sees every quiet act of faithfulness behind closed doors. But they're feeling weak and rejected, and Christ's message to them is not, believe in yourself. It's not, you've got what it takes, keep on going. His emphasis is on himself. He says, I have sustained you thus far. I have brought you to this place. Even though you are weak, you've been faithful. The strong implication being, because of me, because I've been at work, and now I will sustain you. I will keep you to the end. And I want to really reset your expectations this evening. I want to, in one sense, remind you that this experience these guys are experiencing is not unusual. It's not unique to them, I think. Actually, they set a pattern for us. They remind us that oftentimes the Christian life will feel hard. I think I want to give you the picture of a kind of endurance race. Christ commends them for their patient endurance. And that word endurance is not a word that conjures up ease and just kind of lying back on a sun lounger to endure something you don't go and endure a nice meal or a wonderful holiday to endure something means that was difficult it speaks of pushing through the pain of doing something that you don't want to do but you keep on pushing yourself endurance says this will be hard that's the first thing that i want to help you to see this evening but more than that and this is the real kicker, it's not just that they are running a great endurance race, it's that they are weak and insufficient for the task, or more precisely, you are weak and insufficient for the task. And I want to show you what it means to locate your strength in Christ, to, to, to actually be okay with your own weakness, because you have found a strength from outside of yourself that is so much greater than any strength you might seek to conjure up within yourself. I want you to hear Christ's call to hold on to him. And really, there are two groups of people, I think, we're speaking to this evening. There'll be some of you who, when I speak of weakness, will say, I have no frame of reference for what you're talking about. I'm, I'm pretty strong. I don't struggle with weakness. And to you, I think I would want to warn you that that's a really bad place to be. <laughs> that that, if, that's, if, you, if the sense of this weakness just doesn't resonate, I think you've got to hear Jesus' warning. He's speaking to um, proud religious leaders, uh, Matthew's Gospel, and he says, For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. I want you to, if you're feeling really strong right now, I want to show you the reality of your weakness. I want to show you, in a sense, want to hear Christ's word to stop believing in yourself and to put your faith in him. That's those who feel strong. Some of you will feel weak some of us will relate very strongly to this concept of weakness. You feel acutely aware of your weakness. Maybe when you're going through a season of suffering. Maybe you recognize certain dispositions within yourself. Maybe a disposition to melancholy or to um, apathy. And you say, I'm, I, I know that my heart is not what I want it to be. Or maybe you find a tendency towards anxiety within yourself or depression. Or, or, or maybe you're just fearful and you can f- fear other people or... What I want you to imagine for a moment, what is the thing about yourself that you feel most frustrated with? What is the kind of thing that you end up beating yourself up about? It's probably often your weaknesses. Often your greatest things that you kind of frustrate yourself. That we even end up hating our weaknesses. Frustrated with others who seem to be so strong. And to those of you who feel weak, I want you to hear Christ's welcome to the weak. Actually to see the gift of weakness. But the reason why, let's go back then and start then. The reason why your weakness is a problem is because you have a great endurance race ahead of you. The first point I want you to know is the Christian life is harder than you realise. Your weakness is a problem because the Christian life is a great endurance race. It's easy to assume these guys are a special case, but the suffering they're experiencing is not unique. The Christian life is hard. And we don't want you to be naive about the challenge that lay, lies ahead of you. Many of you are young. As you think about a lifetime of following Christ, I want to remind you that there is a challenge here. This is hard. I think the reason why we do this is because I worry sometimes that we, that we don't expect to suffer as Christians. Either because you've had it, heard it from the pulpit, where people, a kind of version of the prosperity gospel that says, if you're a Christian, you won't suffer. And that's total rubbish. Or sometimes it's subconsciously within us. That when we go through suffering, that attitude is, is um, revealed to be going on within us because we find ourselves getting frustrated, bitter, even resentful, saying, why is this suffering happening to me? Because we never expected to suffer. Because somehow we assume that if I'm following Christ, that I won't have to go through hardships. And this letter, this word to the uh, church in Philadelphia, but actually the whole passage, kind of le- different words to these churches, says actually, no, you should expect to suffer. It speaks about... Patient endurance, and actually John, John, who's writing this uh, in in John chapter one, describes himself as your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that in Jesus. John is writing to them from the island of Patmos, a slave labor colony, probably. He was doing hard labor, maybe working in a mine, as was on the island. So here we have a church leader writing to a suffering church. He's suffering himself. They both follow a suffering saviour who is willing to lay down his life in suffering. Why would we expect suffering to be absent from our life? I think we can expect it for a number of different reasons. First of all, because we live in a fallen world. We're not immune from the challenges of everyday life. The Christian faith, I would argue, is uniquely realistic about the everyday challenges of life, because the very beginning, the origin story, says right from the moment of human existence, as Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they, enact, they, they their, their rebellion, they're what we call the fall. Brings about a brokenness to this world. Brings about the reality of sickness and death and hard work, even and pain in childbirth. And it creates a world which which experiences corruption, brokenness, frustration, sickness, and mortality. So that's the first reason. Second reason is we uniquely experience opposition. You see this again and again in these different communities. the early church experiences a great sense of running against the grain of culture, of swimming upstream. Of These guys have faced great rejection and opposition from their fellow countrymen. And that may be true for us too. We, to follow Christ in our culture may mean to lose face, to lose the approval of the people around you, to be somehow scorned as weird Or, or worse might involve losing recognition, opportunities. And the great danger, the reason why we need to remember this is because the great danger is we seek to avoid this kind of suffering by dialing down our Christian convictions, by not talking about our faith, by hiding away in a Christian bubble, perhaps. Notice, by the way, that these believers are commended because this, this public persecution has not stopped them from being public about their faith. Jesus commends them, You have kept my word and have not denied my name. I wonder whether we can even fall into a kind of semi-denial, not by simply not denying him publicly, but by withdrawing, by refusing subconsciously or subtly to even be associated with Christ's name. Maybe that's a kind of semi-form of denial. We need to recognize that we'll face opposition and to be prepared for it. Thirdly, we experience a war within ourselves. You've heard the, the, probably if you're a Christian, you know the idea of the, the war within, the, within yourself between the flesh and the spirit. That it's like there's almost, imagine for the moment you're running that great endurance race and there's part of you, the new man, the new woman that is running after Christ wholeheartedly, that running with your eyes fixed on him and then there's a, an old man, the old flesh that still exists within you and it's kind of, imagine running next to you, kind of kicking you and undermining your great attempt to follow Christ, what it says is there are desires deep within you that are at war with your stated aim, your goal to follow Christ wholeheartedly. To follow Christ will mean putting to death, saying no, starving those desires, so to speak, and refusing some of the things that feel so instinctively right. Feel so, there's such a desire within you to do that thing. And yet to follow Christ will mean saying no to those desires. What it says is self-sabotage is actually, I would argue, the greatest enemy of the Christian life. Your problem is not with the people around you. So if you're married, you might say, oh, you know, my, my spouse is, was not like this or whatever. The problem is not with the people around you. The problem is with yourself. D.L. Moody, a great Christian evangelist, said, the man I have the greatest problem with is D.L. D.L. Moody. Imagine you apply that to your workplace challenges, the people you've, you, you wish that colleague wasn't like that. Maybe actually the problem is with you, the flesh. Thirdly, or fourthly, sorry, I think we experience suffering as Christians because we love others. The suffering of love, of sacrifice. We will suffer if we love others. If we take seriously Christ's call to lay down our lives, to spend ourselves on behalf of our brothers and sisters and to embody the great enemy love of christ to sacrifice ourselves and love the people who don't love us to care for our neighbors to seek to love others well at times we'll then experience rejection people won't always receive our love in the way we we want them to maybe they'll kind of say you're an idiot or whatever the people won't necessarily receive that love as we want them to. Much of New Testament suffering is not everyday suffering, the just you know, sickness or, or whatever. Actually, think about Paul. He suffers because he lays down his life, because he takes the gospel to various different geographies and gets chased out of town. I want you to see the scale of the task ahead of us and should measure, fill us with a measure of humility to see that actually some have gone before us and then veered off the path simply because it was too difficult. It doesn't mean, by the way, that it's not completely worth it. That we haven't found a love that is greater than life, that means every sacrifice is worth making, but it does mean we understand that we have an endurance race ahead of us. But here's the real kicker. You are running this race, and you're weak and insufficient for the task. We're fundamentally incapable of the task we've been given. Christ knows our weakness, and I want you to see, ironically, that that weakness is a gift hear the reality of Christ's words to this church and to us as the people of God, you have little power and that's okay. The human condition, I would argue, is inherently weak but we live in our culture with a kind of denial of the reality of that condition, of our mortality. That's the obvious one. In our culture, we we put death out of our minds, we try and pretend that it's that it's not there. It's like, uh, if you've read Harry Potter, the way none of them want to talk about Lord Voldemort. If you say his name, everyone kind of, uh, uh, maybe some of you haven't read it, but if you have read it, you'll notice there's this great, great villain in the book who no one can talk about because they're afraid of him. And death is a little bit like that in our culture. We can't talk about death because it makes us afraid. Actually, the Bible is much more realistic about the reality of our mortality. This is how uh, Moses puts it in one of the Psalms. He says, "'You return man to dust.'" And say, return, O children of man. You sweep them away as with, a, as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. You might make 70 or 80 years, and yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. That's we experience our weakness in our mortality. We experience our weakness just in the flesh, in the fact that we cannot um, manage ourselves in the way we want to. Think about how Jesus speaks to his disciples. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane. He's there, and it's the night before his crucifixion. He's in agony of the, of what, of the fate that awaits him. And he says to his disciples, stay awake. Look after me, brothers. You're my closest brothers. Stay with me. But what do they do? They fall asleep. He says, the the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's almost comic that he's writhing in agony in the garden, facing this great terror, and his brothers can't even stay awake. It would be comic, except we see ourselves in the story, that we are so tragically um, unmoved by suffering around us. We have a crushing insensitivity to the needs around us. It's such a deep tendency towards self-preservation. Or even the way we, are, we feel so resistant to change. As soon as you try to change yourself, you realize that, that, that you're unable to overcome the things that frustrate you the most. That pride that you see every part of your inner being, the self-pity or the repetitive sin patterns. So many of us are caught in a sense of despair with ourselves that we just kind of stop looking inward because it's just uncomfortable to do so. We, we live in a culture where so many of us were brought up on this idea of leading others, but we can't even lead ourselves. Ultimately, human weakness is, is ulti- I would say, one more, is that we are impotent to control the universe. When you go through suffering, and I predict you will all go through this at some point in your life, you will find yourself going through a season where you watch someone you love suffering. And you will be frustrated, or, or, or not, depending on how... You, how Wise you are, I think. Um, at your absolute impotence to control reality. That you cannot change the situation. You cannot bend reality to your will, which only the living God can do. We're impotent to control the universe. But secular humanity, our culture cannot, cannot accept this weakness. We try and live in denial. It's individually, we, we see how we deny our weakness. We, we might try and blame others. We might try and say, there's all sorts of reasons why I struggle. Maybe parenting or, uh, you know, if if you're struggling in your job, oh, that had a bad manager who didn't bring the best out of me. We're all so quick to blame our circumstances, and there may be some truth in that, but it's because we cannot face the idea that we ourselves might be weak. Why so often we see the culture encouraging those kind of um, self-confidence and self-belief, and it's from a very young age we seek to imbue children with those attitudes Because we cannot face the idea that we are weak. We try to fool ourselves into thinking that we're strong. Why we try to avoid contemplating our mortality. Because the idea is unthinkable. I would say weakness is unbearable to the man without Christ. To the person without Christ. Because you have no hope of an all-powerful God who is above them. If I am simply an autonomous agent if there's no one else out there who is bigger and stronger than me, that I, I cannot bear with the idea I'm weak because I'm, I'm powerless. And human beings cannot face that reality. It's a cause of so much anxiety as you think about the future and all the things that might happen to you, and you say, I cannot control the future. But the Christian is in a different place. The Christian is in the unique and liberating place of being able to recognize and admit and acknowledge their weakness. I mean, it's first of all, it's the way into the Christian life. You cannot become a Christian unless you recognize your weakness, to recognize the sickness within. You know, Christ, remember what he said? He said, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. I came for those who acknowledge a deep brokenness within. Unless you acknowledge that, if you still are somehow telling yourself, I can work my way to, to righteousness, I can be the, the very best person if you think you don't need God, then you can never come to Christ. The defining mark of a Christian is an acceptance of their weakness. But more than that, and I think the real reason why we can accept our weakness is because we have a saviour who welcomes the weak. Think about that thing that frustrates you the most about yourself, that sense of weakness that you experience. And I want you to hear that Christ welcomes you in your weakness. This is how uh, one of the... um, Visions of Christ in Isaiah, Isaiah 42. And uh, it's a messianic prophecy. And he says, He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. A bruised reed he will not break. It's speaking of a... You Imagine you, you break a twig, but it's your, the two bits are still hold, held together, but there's a kind of snap in the middle. It's a picture of someone who's on the very end of themselves, who's almost broken, or a, a flickering candle where the, the light is almost out, where you say, I'm at the very end of myself, I cannot bear any more. saying someone who feels deeply broken. What is Christ's response to them? It's not get away from me, you sort yourself out and come to me when you're ready. Sort your weakness out, I'm here for the strong. No, it's the, you hear the suffering saviour who took on weakness, who embraced humanity in its weakness, coming, saying, welcome, come to me, oh, you weak ones. We, have, we follow a Messiah, the great strong man of the universe, of history, who entered into human weakness. Hebrews chapter four describes when he says since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus the son of God let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin here we are the great word of God the one who was there in the beginning who takes on the weakness of human flesh who enters into the human condition, who experiences tiredness and frailty and humiliation and temptation but doesn't give in in to it and rejection and suffering. Every human weakness, (laughs) number of different human weaknesses that some of you can relate to there, Christ has entered in. It's almost like he's he's learnt to speak the human language of weakness. He, He understands us. He knows us. When you draw close to Him, you say, "Christ, I'm at the end of myself. I can't do this anymore." He says, "I know, and I love you, even in your sin." Some of you, you say, "I'm trapped in sin, or I'm I'm overwhelmed by the sin." This form of weakness, I suppose. See that the great physician, the great healer, is drawn towards you. Who moves towards you in your sickness? It's counterintuitive. You say, "Jesus, don't look at me. I'm such a mess." And Jesus said, I'm coming for you and I'm coming to clean you up. It's the opposite response to weakness that we expect. The Christian can acknowledge our weakness because we worship a saviour who says, come to me, you weak and weary ones. And I want to say, really, ultimately, it's even better than that. I'd say your weakness is a gift. Your weakness is, is actually a blessing in your life. In uh, 2 Corinthians, Paul is describing his weakness, and he describes boasting in his weakness. He describes almost celebrating his weakness. Think about that thing that frustrates you about yourself, and say, imagine for a moment standing up here and boasting about it. Very few of us are willing to do that, but Paul is. Why? Because Paul sees his weakness as a gift. I think we fail to see it that way, but let me give you a few reasons why weakness is a gift in the Christian life. First of all, weakness humbles us. when Paul talks about boasting in his weakness, it's part of a passage where Paul describes seeing this great revelation of God, seeing him in all his glory, and says, actually, that that would have puffed me up. And so this is what he says. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Weakness humbles us. Every time you feel impotent to deal with the suffering that you experience is a reminder of our smallness and the vastness and glory of God. Every time you experience daily temptation, it's a daily reminder that you can barely conquer yourself. You cannot conquer yourself, let alone conquer the world. So weakness humbles us in a really good way. Humility is such an important part of the Christian life. Weakness is one of the means that God uses to remind us of our of our of our our need for humility. Second of all, weakness teaches us dependence. You know, self sufficiency—that sense of I don't need anything from anyone—is the great enemy of the Christian life. It's the enemy of prayer. Think about the the next church along in this series is Laodicea, and and Jesus has a great rebuke for them because they have become rich and self satisfied. They're wealthy. They don't need God. And Jesus has a firm rebuke to them. Actually, poverty or the battle with sin or a battling weakness like depression or anxiety or the fear of man, these things are good because they force us to our knees in prayer. They force us to learn dependence on the living God who provides the comfort that we need in that moment as we experience that battle. Think about anxiety. I know some of you will struggle with anxiety, and it feels debilitating, and I often find myself speaking to Christians who experience anxiety, and there's lots of things we can say, but one of the things I want to say to people when they experience anxiety is, actually, there's a gift here. You might not be able to see it, but anxiety is a window into the fundamental human condition that you are vulnerable and you cannot control the future. Usually, when you experience anxiety, you're experiencing anxiety about something that might happen in the future, and some sense of I cannot control the future; it might go wrong. And actually, when you experience anxiety, it's it's a window into that reality that says there's some truth in what you feel. We cannot control the future; you are impotent in that sense. It forces you to your knees every day when you experience that anxiety. Or I think about myself; I've an unusual weakness. which is that I, for, very, for all sorts of reasons, um, I worry sometimes that my very closest friends don't actually love me. And, um, and, it, and it's kind of like a, a deep insecurity, uh, just about my very closest friends. And it sometimes leads me to pull away from people who I'm really close to. And what's really good, and I think in my own life, when I reflected on this, thinking what is the gift of this weakness? Well, one gift I get from this weakness is it forces me back to the cross. It forces me back to the great... Unconditional acceptance of my father. That as I kind of, almost there's a kind of uncertainty about the love of human beings in my heart. And I'll and and be clear, it's not actually true. It's kind of a, a misperception of reality. Actually, I can go back to Christ. I can savor and taste and just like drink in this great love, this great acceptance that is without question. That's just an example from my own life. But I think all of us will actually. I would well, challenge you almost to see in what way does God use this weakness or could God use the weakness in your life for your, for your good? Thirdly, it forces us to depend on other people. It's uncomfortable. We live in a profoundly individualistic age. Some of you uh, will know that about four or five weeks ago, I completely lost sight of when, but we had a little daughter called Esther. She was born very premature. She's very small. Um, if you put her on a list of 200 babies, she would be the smallest one. Um, but she... And so the last five weeks have been quite challenging, various points. And... We've just experienced the most incredible love from the church family in that time. And there are moments when people message you and say like, oh, can I do this for you? Or can I do that? And there's part of you that goes, it's okay, I want to try and be able to cope on our own. Maybe we don't want to put people out or whatever. And it's in that moment you have to say no. I'm going to say yes, please do (laughs) come and serve us in all sorts of ways. Um, Because actually it's good for them. It's good for the other people as well. It's Actually, when you deny your weakness, when you try and kind of hide your weakness from others and actually... The church suffers because we need to learn to depend on each other. You give others an opportunity to serve and to be spent on your behalf by admitting weakness. And finally, your weakness is an ideal vessel for God's strength. In 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul says the great w- response from God as he's wrestling and saying, God, remove this thorn from me. What's God's response to him? My power is made perfect in weakness. God is more glorified by using broken and weak vessels than using those who would somehow think that they could do it without God's help. The perfect way for God to demonstrate his power is to work in the lives of broken, weak, tempted, tired people. That is God's speciality. So let's not deny our weakness. Let's actually give thanks for the thorns in the flesh, for our meager abilities, for our human frailties, for our specific temptations, for the various situations in life that highlight our weakness to us. It's only then that we are humbled and learn to depend on God. But it's not simply that God wants us to languish in our weakness, to kind of navel gaze. This should all push us to the source of our strength, to our great hope that you will endure because Christ is strong. We need not despair because we worship the great strong man of history that is Jesus Christ. I can't spend all this time showing you your weakness without showing you why that weakness is good news because you will learn to depend on the great strong man of history. He gives us a few different ways that we can see his strength at work in this passage. The first is Christ wants them to know, to see, he wants us to see that he is in charge of it all. In the moment of suffering, it's so easy to lose sight of Christ, to say, where is Christ? And yet Christ wants them to see that he is everywhere in this picture. Just here, listen out as I read it to you for the pronoun I. He says, I know your works. I have set before you an open door. I know that you have but little power. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan bound down before you. (coughs) I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the earth. I am coming soon. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. I, I, I. Christ is actively at work in the midst of the darkest, difficult season of these people's lives. He wants them to know, I am right in the middle of it. I'm in charge. The beginning of this story, he starts describing himself as the Holy One, the Holy One of Israel. He's saying, I'm divine, reminding them of his divinity, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. And it's, a, it's an allusion back to Isaiah 22 about this guy called Eliakim, who's a, a, a doorkeeper in the house, but it's uh, the temple, but it's really actually the highest position. One who is seated on a throne, Christ is reminding them that he is seated on the throne above everything that they're experiencing. Here they are, a, a small beleaguered community. And here the synagogue looms large before them, that community that's thrown them out. And behind them, the great might of Rome looms behind the synagogue. And these Christians are vulnerable. And yet, above it all, Christ looms largest seated on the throne, in charge over everything, sovereignly directing the events of history. Christ would want them to see that he is the great actor of all the events that they are experiencing. Second of all, he's working out his purposes despite our weaknesses. In verse 8, he says, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And that phrase, open door, is often used in the New Testament to describe an opportunity for witness, for the gospel going out. Paul talks about an open door opening here or there and different places when he's had an opportunity for the mission of God to advance. And what it's saying is, Jesus is saying, right in the midst of this suffering, as everything is going against you, my mission is flourishing. Notice how he says, you've not denied my name. They are proclaiming the gospel. Disciples are being made. God's purposes are at work even amidst the suffering. Isn't that the world we see today? The church is beleaguered. We see all sorts of threats in a way we can relate to some of the weakness that they're experiencing, and yet God's mission continued. We prayed with someone this morning to become a follower of Christ, to give their lives to Him. We saw a baptism a few weeks ago, someone else who's given their life to Christ. I can think of others I know who are on a journey towards Christ or who've given their life to Christ, and you'll hear their stories. Our next baptism. My point is simply God's mission continues despite the weakness they're experiencing. And this is crucial. God will continue to use you despite your weaknesses. Our weaknesses and flaws are no to you, to God's using us. If our overconfidence in ourselves is one problem, our underconfidence in the power of God is another problem. Think about how often you don't speak of Christ because you're maybe thinking, I'm just going to make a a pig's ear of it, so there's no point in me even trying. What we need to remember is God specializes in using weak people. It's all the way through Scripture. Moses, the man who can hardly speak, is used as a vessel to proclaim God's truth to, to Pharaoh. Or David, who's a small pipsqueak of a man, no strength about him, is used to defeat the great enemy Goliath. Or the disciples, uneducated men who have very little by way of training and impress, impressive qualities about them, launch a movement that, tra- that takes hold across the Jewish people far against the wishes of the religious elite who with all their training and school and public influence. Or he, even Paul, the, he's a thug, isn't he? He's a guy who's been, be- who's been pursuing the uh, murder of Christians early on in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7. He's not a good guy, a murderous thug, you might call him, and yet God uses him to write some of the most beautiful words about love in human history in 1 Corinthians 13, for example. God specializes in using weak people for his purposes. That's all he ever does. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God's strength is stronger than your weaknesses. And if you're, if you're given to great self-doubt and sense of holding back and not serving or not being involved in others' lives because you think, I can't and I'm weak, maybe you need to know that the living God can use the weak things of the world to shame the wise. There's no cause for despair because we recognise our weaknesses, but we agree with Paul when he proclaims, I can do all things through Christ. Who strengthens me, And the final comfort that Paul gives us here is really interesting. It's that Christ will not allow your faith to be destroyed by the trials that you experience. He says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will see you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now you think, what on earth is he talking about? He's not talking about stopping them from trials. Because we already know the whole book of Revelation is full of suffering. Christians will suffer. We just spent some time looking at that already. Actually, what he's talking about is the living God will send all sorts of um, suffering on this world. Trials, tribulations, to shake the world out of its stupor. To bring them to their knees that they might cry out and turn back to worship the living God. But he will not allow your suffering to destroy your faith. Christ will not allow, whatever suffering you go through, whatever trials you experience, Christ will not allow that to take you away from him. Christ will hold you to himself. He will hold you so that you endure with him. It says when you go through suffering, when you go through hardship, you can, you can rest assured that the most precious thing you have, which is Christ's presence in your life and his love, will not be taken away from you. And that is the greatest comfort in suffering, when you go through all sorts of trials, to know that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Paul asks in Romans, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall trouble or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? knowing all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for i am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of god that is in christ jesus our lord whatever you go through in life whatever trials you experience even death if you are with christ nothing can separate you from him you are rich because you have Christ, because you have his love, that you can withstand any trial. It means we do not need to fear suffering. Whatever life throws at us, we have Christ. And one day, we will know that Christ will reveal his love Authority. He will reveal this great reality to us as he speaks to these believers and says, One day your enemies will bow down before you. One day I will make you a a pillar in the temple of God. I will I will gather you to myself as I establish my rule and reign on this new creation. We will see that Christ was always in charge, that Christ was working out his purposes in the midst of the mess and the weakness and the brokenness of this world, and Christ will not let us be separated from him, that we are his and nothing can take us away from him. So brothers and sisters, let me leave you with one encouragement. Hold on to Christ. Take your weaknesses and Christ's strength and hear his call to hold on to him, to walk in dependence to with him. It says, where will you run in your darkest days when you go through the deepest trials of your life? Where will you find the greatest comfort except the bosom of Christ? Verse 9, he says, one day those who opposed him oppose these Christians, will learn that I have loved you. You will be tempted when you go through suffering in life to stop, to kind of lose sight of Christ's love, to lose sight of his presence. And it's in those moments that you need to remember the reality of Christ's love is the greatest comfort existentially for you. It's the thing you need. When you're going through suffering, it's not answers or or this is why it's happening. What you need is love. Anyone who's been through suffering will tell you and you will find that love in the person of Christ. So run to him in your pain. Run to him for the love, not the rational answers that you need. Trust the promises of God. Speak these truths to yourself. Hold on to the promise that Christ is working out his purposes, that he loves you, that he is in charge, that He's sovereign. Don't lose sight of that. And finally, we walk in on our knees. How do we express that sense of holding on to Christ? We walk on our knees in prayer. The great answer, surely, as we see our weakness in Christ's strength is to fall to our knees and to constantly return to Christ moment after moment, day after day, expressing our dependence on him in prayer. Both for the existential comfort, for the power and the strength to endure, but also because we are praying to the one who is able to bend the universe to his will, who is able to change the events of human history. So how could we not? bring our concerns to him in prayer. Our prayer is our vital way of expressing that we are holding on to Christ. So here, Christ's call to take hold of him. Don't take your eyes off him, particularly when you're going through trials and life feels hard. But even as we hear this call to hold on to Christ, I suggest it's a little bit like when I asked my uh, one-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Anna, to hold my hand <laughs> and we're walking by a road, I say, hold on to me. And she puts her hand out, but we all know that I'm the one doing the holding. <laughs> Thankfully, it does not depend on her holding on to me. Actually, my grip on her is far greater than her grip on me. And I think the same with the living God. When, we, when he calls us to hold on to him, we hold on to him with the deepest conviction that he is holding on to us that he will enable us to endure patiently as he's calling us to, that he will strengthen us. He will provide the spirit that we need. He will provide the truth, the encouragement, the community, and everything we need to endure. He is holding on to us. As we turn to worship now, I want us, we're going to start with uh, that great hymn, He Will Hold Me Fast. We'll dwell on the fact that it is Christ who is holding us. Just as we hear his call to patiently endure, Christ is patiently walking with us through whatever trials, whatever experiences we have in life.